Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in. Turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 9, Episode 6. I'm your host, Otis Gyre, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you, courtesy of author T.J. Lee, about audacious artisans, concerned cosmonauts, insidious ids, and repulsive ruminants. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail... So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> People go missing every day. Whether they come back is another story altogether, and in what shape. 
In our first story from T.J. Lee, when a sheriff of a small town gets a lead as to who may be responsible for some of the troubles in his town, he leaps at the chance, though he may not be happy with the results. Without further ado, I present to you Master Craftsmanship. It is as it sounds, incredulous as it may be, I promise there is an explanation within. I've been the sheriff of a little town called Sturgeon for nearly 23 years. In that time, I've seen many horrific incidents descend upon our town, fall out of my jurisdiction and get passed up to higher-ups faster than you can say nightmare scenario. It's frustrating. There's damn sure plenty of days where I feel that I'm just a prop in a toy badge. But I'm still needed for the wet work, the ugly jobs and the things that stick with you no matter what your poison of choice may be. There's a saying about gazing into the void and it gazes into you. But what do you do when the void follows you wherever you go? Nobody is making me share this report. This account of the events that unfolded over at Castor Oil Creek deserves the light of day, even if it haunts me with every waking moment, a negative to my every positive. For example, while 89% of missing persons are found, that includes dead or alive. People go missing, frequently. Put enough folks in one place and you're bound to have bad apples, rotten apples, and things that wear the skin of apples to lure in precocious prey. So when people began vanishing in quick succession in Sturgeon, it was something we took notice of. I'd long suspected that it was one perpetrator targeting seemingly at random. They left no evidence, no bodies were ever recovered, and it was always a situation where the overwhelming emotion we were left with was helplessness. If I never have to look at a grieving family in the eyes and tell them I've done all that I can, it'll be too goddamn soon. But we're a small sheriff's office, and our resources are limited. This land is old and full of places we can't search. Eventually, it's either open but privately declared closed, or the higher-ups take an interest and we're left fielding apologies left, right, and center. Not this time, no. This time, it started with us and ended with us. I need another drink. I can't face sharing this without a couple in me. Hell, y'all have no clue who I am, and you're already wise to the fact I'm stalling. Sorry, context matters. Fires started appearing over town back in the winter of 2019. Simple, bespoke tables made by Master Crafter Wayland Mosley, looking for an apprentice, a muse, and a varnisher to help him. Sales must be inquired further. When prompted, he'd bragged about how his craft was passed down to him from his father and his father's father. Something about old blood, sweat, and tears poured into every creation. In those early days, I asked him if he kept any of his furniture or sold... Uh, most of his pieces. He bristled at the response before saying something 
that forever was etched into my mind. Only the ones I connect with. We were already dealing with the situation at the time. It was decided that a two-part sting operation would be best. The first part would be to entice him with a purchase he couldn't refuse. The next would be to catch him in the act as soon as he got to his workshop. Truth be told, we didn't know what exactly we'd find, but we knew something shady was going on. We suspected human trafficking. We were wrong. We were so, so wrong. My hands are still shaking. Another drink should help. God, I hope so. Deputy Willis eagerly volunteered for the job. He was young and fast became my best friend. The last deputy went on maternity leave and wasn't planning on coming back, so Willis, being the happy helper, stepped up. Twenty-five years old and wise beyond his years, he was the best little brother I could ask for. The age gap made him feel more like a son. I'd lost mine many years ago to a strange cult. Willis's and my parents died young, and he was painfully shy, so I felt the need to protect him. Still, when someone steps up to the plate to do their duty and to impress you, well, it's hard to say no to that. I made him promise me he'd contact us on the transmitter the second he sensed danger. I promised him in return we'd never let anything happen to him. I've lied many times. I lied to my wife, to my friends, and to myself. But lying without realizing it at the time is the worst thing imaginable. It's a lie that will haunt me forever. We set up shop at the Sturgeon Flea Market, a place that we had very little jurisdiction within. It was decreed long ago that compromises had to be made with the higher-ups for things to run smoothly and with as little bloodshed as possible. Deals were cut, and we promised to look the other way so long as the trouble wasn't brought to our doorstep. We were up to our chests in filth, and the people were either none the wiser or did as we did. I wouldn't say I liked it, knowing that, as I donned an unassuming outfit and grew out my beard for the occasion, setting up this small curio stand in the middle of a slew of entrepreneurs who dabbled in the occult, the vile, and the unspeakable. And I was no different from them. After all, I was selling Willis. Perhaps he didn't see it that way, but I sure as hell did. Once Wayland paid for him, Willis was his to do with as he pleased. He strolled up around noon. He was a lot more well-kempt than I pictured. Maybe two decades of dealing with the ugliest of criminals gave me a biased impression of someone I thought dabbled in human trafficking. But this guy looked normal. About 5'8", 155 pounds, nice clothes, if a little eccentric. His short red hair was gelled and parted to the side, his freckled smile giving off a disarming sensation. He stopped in his tracks and looked at what I had on offer. A mixture of antiques, curiosities, and Willis sat in a leather chair with his best poker face. He was told to look like he'd been broken. He certainly gave off that impression. The moment he laid eyes on Willis, something clicked on him. He's magnificent, he breathed, 
running his hand across his legs and thighs, as if inspecting a priceless artifact. I had to hold down bile as I forced a smile, remembering my training. You like him, kid? I walked over, slapping his shoulder with pride. Well, this one was a hell of work to make, but I'm damn proud of how he turned out. I laughed, but my eyes fixated on Waylon, who bristled as I put force on Willis's shoulder. I couldn't figure out why at the time, but he brushed it off and reached for his wallet. How much? I saw his lip quiver ever so slightly. What did he have planned for him? I wanted to tackle this asshole to the ground right then and there, but the trained words spill out of me before I could stop myself. For Willis? Hmm. He's a model, after all. How much you got? I put on my best salesman face and leaned in, disgusted at myself for how far I'd go to secure the arrest, telling myself it's for the victim's past, present, and future. He's a keeper, you know. Waylon fumbled and pulled out sixty bucks, saying something about rent and stimulus checks not being in. I was taken aback. If he was a human trafficker, where was his cut? I stared, trying to formulate a response, but he pulled something out of his pocket before I could reply and held it in front of me. There's also this. It was my grandpa's. It's a warding talisman. It's supposed to keep bad spirits away. It's priceless. So this was why we never found him. The creep was handing me the one thing that was keeping him hidden. I realize to many of you this is hokum, and I don't blame you. But where I come from, this sort of old practice does what it says in the tin. It keeps the wearer obscured. Not invisible or anything like that, but it hides them from prying eyes. And either he didn't know what it truly did, or he didn't care when faced with a new model to take home. It didn't matter. This was what I wanted. There was nothing more to do. I took the talisman and inspected it, nodding, as he took Willis by the hand and walked away. Willis took one last look back at me, his eyes glowing with pride. He knew he was going to be the one to call it in, and we'd be heroes for capturing one of Sturgeon's worst human traffickers. As I smiled back, a chill ran through the air and practically froze my blood. An omen. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I realize to those of you following along that there's no pause in this account. 
But for me, I had to stop and drink myself to sleep. The closer we get to the moment it all came to a head, the more I want to put a bullet between my eyes and make it all go away. But I recognize the public interest in what happened. And I have a duty to tell it, so we continue. Willis's tracker was supposed to allow us to follow him, no matter where he went, even if Wayland stripped him bare and gave him new clothes. It was under his skin, after all. We didn't expect Wayland to check that. And yet, once their signal went toward the Cardic woods, it simply died. Sixteen hours had passed, and we were beginning to get antsy. It was decided we'd look in the area surrounding the woods and see who lived there. It didn't take us long to find Castor Oil Creek and the small set of lodges out there. While Old Man Mathers was immediately ruled out, the same couldn't be said for his neighbor across the creek. Been in this area a long, long time, he told us up on the drive there. All of them settled here before my family did. Helped us build this here lodge for a time until my great-great-grandpappy Obadiah asked them to leave. Never told us why. Simply said it wasn't right what they were doing over there. Now there's just one. I don't see him much. He's a solitary type. He's so involved in his woodworking, he doesn't even notice what's going on in this here creek. We pressed him on the creek, but all he'd say was, bad water, and refused to comment further, instead pausing and replying with, looks like a storm's brewing, better be ready. We arrived at the old lodge within twenty minutes. A quiet night with the moon reflecting over the creek, not a sound of nature or insects whatsoever as we made our approach. You'd think with three cars and five trained service members, we'd be less intimidated. But nothing prepares you for what we saw. Breaking down the door, we were greeted with an almost ancient and rustic living room. Dust littered everywhere, and the furniture looked so frail and worn down that it'd break if so much as anyone touched it. The smell of rotting wooden mothballs was overpowering. I'm sure mold was a factor, too, but there was something iron-like in the air that I couldn't place. A quick sweep of the home showed us the only non-dusty area, the large rug. Moving that aside led to a trapdoor that, with great effort, came open and led down a large set of stairs. As we descended, the smell of death began to grow in intensity. Our less experienced servicemen, opting to hang back and cover the entrance, uh, leaving two colleagues and me to continue. I need another drink. My hands won't stop shaking. We approached what I can only describe as a leathery, undulating door. It shook in place and felt like the hide of a cow to touch. It was warm when I placed my hand against it, and something moved underneath my palm. I pushed without much force, and the door gave way. The stench was unbearable, and my eyes watered as my stomach threatened to eject everything within it. I felt my knees begin to buckle, but my resolve kept them upright. I was grateful all three of us had masks on. I don't know I'd been able to, uh, to cope otherwise. The room was stained in red. It had been transformed into a living area, 
with odd furniture lining each section of a sizable room. A large hairy wardrobe in the corner next to a bed that seemed to sway in place. A small chest of drawers with bizarre shelves holding a spiked lamp on top of it. The TV sat in the center of the room, some strange mesh coating its entire frame, and a screen blurring out static that partially illuminated the room, the yellow couch with purple spots seeming to dance in the light. To the right, however, sat cages. Some rusted over, others covered in filth and blood, but they were unmistakable. Gotcha. There, right in the center, clad in a stained apron and humming to himself, was Wayland, busying himself over a table with a slew of tools cast at the side. Wayland Mosley, you're under arrest for human trafficking, I called, trying to push authority into my best voice, the best I could, trying not to gag. He put a thick tarp over the table and turned as if in a daze, arms spread out and smiling. Have you come to check out my furniture, officer? He laid his eyes on me, and one of my colleagues moved in to arrest him. His smile faded. Were you expecting someone else? A client for your illicit practices, perhaps? I scoffed, the stains on his apron and hands telling an ugly tale. What's the meaning of this? What's going on? I'll have your badges, all of you. He cried, genuinely upset that we'd barged in as if what he was doing was perfectly normal. I took a couple of steps closer, his current project still obscured from view. Well, and Mosley, you're going away for a long, long time. We met a little while ago. I'm Sheriff Erickson. We made a little trade, and you gave up something you shouldn't have. I held out the talisman and the saw's eyes glimmer. This town might have some odd practices, but criminals are always the same when it comes to getting what they want. Predictable. I leaned down and grabbed his jaw with my hand, wanting him to feel the power I had, that I could break his jaw, rip out his tongue, or snap his neck if I so wished. Now, where's my deputy? Where's Willis? He wrestled against the officers, but was no match, and simply grunted, before looking back at me, confused and angry. What deputy? You sold me a pristine table. I felt my grip on his mouth tighten, and I let go, slapping him as hard as I could. Don't play with me, son. You inspected him, you paid for him, and took him away by hand. I watched you do it. Now, I ain't gonna ask you nicely again. Where is he? I will never forget the sequence of events that followed, even if I would give anything to do so. His pupils dilated, the eyes moved to the table hidden under the tarp. As I followed them, I felt the world fall away as a single question came into my mind. One I knew the answer to already. Why were all the cages empty? I repeated that question over and over as I slowly walked to the tarp, another officer finding the light switch at the same time and illuminating the whole room. Screams and guttural wretches filled the space as we saw what was in this room of nightmares. What was under the tarp? Something did indeed sit here, but it wasn't pristine. It wasn't a table. It was Willis. 
His skin was stretched to the point that a single tap or scratch, and I knew he had split open. Translucent and thick veins visible like a macabre pattern you'd find on a mahogany table, his limbs acting as horrible legs, his bones broken and reset to fit, his feet and hands turned into malformed stumps. The sockets where his eyes lay were now nothing more than cup holders, his mouth agape as air escaped it. I don't know how Whalen did it. I don't want to know how he did it. But I swear to God, I felt life within Willis. Something in him was still conscious. A soft wheeze escaped him, faint but defiant. Mercy, mercy. My baby brother. I couldn't imagine his suffering. I just sobbed and screamed. As we took in the surrounding room, it was apparent the rest of the furniture wasn't swaying, twitching, or undulating. It was all still alive. It was people. Poor, unfortunate people. Wayland had entrapped and redesigned using his master craftsman technique, making them into his living, bespoke furniture of horrors. And that was the part that terrified me the most. We hauled him away, the entire time he protested his innocence, that he was acquiring old furniture and restoring it. He also insisted someone had set fire to the building, and he was outside when we apprehended him. I don't know if he was mentally trying to distance himself from what he'd done, removing his past deeds somehow, but I don't care. I had to tell Willis's wife what had happened to him. I lied and said Whalen killed him and dumped his body when we found out he wasn't useful. I couldn't bear them knowing he was part of Whalen's furniture. Not even after the news got out. We'd find out as time went on who some of the victims were. An ex-girlfriend here, an old dorm room buddy there, a couple of travelers he'd taken in, and several missing persons from the entertainment district. All in all, we found nearly a dozen missing persons in his home. A lot of families would get both closure and add new nightmares to the suffering at the same time. We interrogated Welland for three straight days, but not once did he break his mentality that what he'd done was wrong. He genuinely did not see any of his victims as people, but as furniture for him to save. After that final interrogation, I wanted to hand in my badge after Welland's sentencing, leave Sturgeon, and settle down somewhere quiet. I couldn't face both his last words and the recollection of our first call with him what it meant for the wider consequences. But it was that feeling that made me stay to catch the next embodiment of evil before they strike. You see, Wayland was very forthright with his business, explaining that he, in fact, did sell on most of his pieces to wealthy clients. I never asked for details, just that they took care of his pieces and paid him appropriately so he could live his dream. He told us in that call he only kept the ones he connected with, like a true freak. But that final response he gave before he was taken away keeps me drinking, keeps my hands shaking, and a lifelong hatred of the evil this world houses. I'll never forget the way his eyes lit up, the curling of his lips, or the way his tongue caressed his teeth when he replied, We'd asked him if he was concerned about the fact that not only had one of his victims 
gotten away before being twisted beyond recognition, ready to testify against him in an already ironclad case, but that Willis was able to speak in short, pain-wracked sentences and give his own account that if and when found guilty, he'd be given one of the worst punishments imaginable. Still hear his response in my ears every time I lay my head down, joining Willis's pain-riddled wheezes as a chorus of hatred and pain. It will haunt me for the rest of my life. No, because furniture doesn't talk. I hope you enjoyed Master Craftsmanship by author T.J. Lee, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that first tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented featured author, you can help support him by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash Lee. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash L-E-A. If you haven't been introduced to Mr. Lee before now then be sure to check into The Expression List, also narrated by yours truly, a while back. Not to worry, I can't wait, as long as you hit the pause button, of course. If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave TJ a kind word and let him know you heard about him here on this show and that Otis Jiry sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this program, and of tonight's featured author. The trick to good furniture is that you need to find just the right starting base. I know this because I was a cabinet maker for 20 years. If you're looking for what's new and popular, maybe pick a nice willow. If you're looking at something more classic, maybe a hazel would be up your alley. Of course, if you really want an antique, a good solid Raymond Birch would be perfect though I don't think he would be talking anytime soon. Speaking of historical relics, we take a glimpse into the space race for our second T.J. Lee tale of the evening. It appears a researcher has been digging deeply into some lost files, and discovered cosmonauts did land on the moon doing secretive testing of their own. To say more of what they've found is to tell too much right now. But maybe let's just say, better to stick to the Pink Floyd album than the real thing. Without further ado, I present to you, Behind the Curtain. I'll say it plain. The acquisition of Nazi Party member Werner von Braun was not the most heinous action NASA committed. Not by a long shot. By the time I've done here, you won't look up at the sky the same way. I want to start by offering an olive branch of trust. I'm not a former NASA employee, astronaut, or high-ranking government official on the loose. Those people don't have the time to share their findings or the wherewithal to do so. No, I'm a whistleblower, sharing this in plain sight where it'll go unnoticed. A needle in a needle pit, if you will. By December of next year, it'll be half a century since humanity has attempted to 
or landed on the surface of our lunar body. We manned six missions between 1968 and 72, and a dozen amazing men have passed 250,000 miles. Since then, the highest we've gone is barely 400 miles. We're staying in the proverbial pocket. Did you ever wonder why that's the case? I started looking into this when many conversations during the lead-up to the half-century anniversary of the lunar landing were met with evasive and awkward answers. Yes, we know NASA has received less than stellar funding over the years, but there's more to it than that. Every time I get an interview with a cosmonaut, a roadblock would be put in my way. He can't see you right now. He's got a hip surgery planned and needs to focus on his recovery. Uh, I'm sorry, but the doctor's unavailable. He's facing bereavement and can't handle interviews at this time. Uh, this is the son's doctor, and she's requesting you cease and desist from contacting her. Roadblock after roadblock. Nobody wanted to talk to me. And every form was littered with idiots, weirdos, and conspiracy theory nuts who were convinced of superfluous tall tales about the moon. These idiots never got a degree, did any proper unbiased research, or went out of their mother's tinfoil-laden basement. They had no clue. But I was objective. I paid my dues reporting on scientific achievements, and I'd always prided myself on being able to focus on the truth, not the circumstantial. Anyone with half a brain could sense something's wrong when they look up at the lunar body, the pale, faceless orb gazing down at us night after night. It gets worse when you remember it's never really gone during the day. That pale blue sky can only hold it back for so long before it rips through the thin veneer of safety and looms overhead. Good thing it can't watch me where I am and in a safe house. Sometimes I hear groaning outside, plating, they still want to communicate, to make me look. I digress. I was persistent and called in some favors to access archived and classified documents highlighting the space race, expeditions to the moon, and lost cosmonauts. For anyone not familiar with the original term, it was used to catalog astronauts sent into space by the Soviets, but the Russian government never acknowledged their existence in any way, thus making them lost. It details many things, horrible things, but the key among them is one word that stood out when referring to the lost cosmonauts. Communication. A transponder developed by the Soviets somehow still worked in the hours following a critical error that would leave a cosmonaut in peril, for brevity, I'll share the transcription in its entirety. 28th May, 1967. Project Hushwave activated, set to direct frequency, awaiting response. Project Overseer, Dr. Vitali. Cosmonaut, Colonel Ellen. Colonel Ellen, do you copy? Can you hear me? No response. Dr. Vitale repeats the question three more times before a response is brought back. Yes, doctor, I can confirm I hear you. I was undersure if it was you. The voices, they can sometimes lie. Clarify. 
A short response, this time suspected hesitance, on Ellen's part due to slight stammer. It's this darkness that lies to you. It makes all voices seem like they're putting on an act trying to gain trust before hurting you. Hurting you badly. It tells me to pull back the curtain, but I refuse. I do not understand. How can there be voices where you are? I don't want anyone from home to understand. You're still in the fog. It's to be expected. I'm here to protect that sanctity. It's my job as a cosmonaut for all of you. For the motherland? No, for all of you. Let's review from earlier. Your mission to Luna was successful. You'd landed and were due for takeoff. You said you needed fixing the controls on Morozov 4 before a navigational issue caused a complete power failure. Yes. And you've reported no way of returning home? Yes. Comrade, forgive the bluntness, but you don't seem to be concerned about this. Are you not worried about death? You've been up there for 40 hours. We estimate you'll be dead in another day, maybe slightly more. We cannot reach you in time. There was a longer-than-usual pause. A small scratching sound can be heard. Doctor, you're far more intelligent of a man than I am. And I have uh, these things I wish to know before... Well, you know. So I wish to ask you three questions before our time's up. I'll provide any information you require in return. Of course. What do you see around you? Anything of note? Nothing. Darkness. Pure, welcoming darkness. Doctor, do you believe in God? I know there is much talk of one. Whether they exist, I do not know. How are you feeling? Is there anything you can tell us? I feel fulfilled. I'm protecting. The voices keep trying to make me pull back the curtain, but I'm strong. I can't tell you anything you don't already know. The rest, I could not if I tried. Do you believe in people? I, of course, Helen. We are strongest together. Greatness comes from perseverance and from our collective vision. Why? Furtive laughter ripples through the transmitter. It doesn't match the vocal patterns of Colonel Ellen. Comrade, what was that? Are you well? That was one of the voices. They found your answer amusing. Vitaly, do you want to see what's behind the curtain? Is your desire to make the motherland strongest worth losing your soul? It was a long pause, heated discussions between Dr. Vitaly and his superiors, arguing as whispering can be heard from Ellen's side. What kind of question is that, Ellen? You have limited time and resources, yet you waste it with such strange questions. I'm sorry, Doctor. The time up here, the silence, the darkness, it's not meant for mortal men. My wife, my son, please pass them a message. It may be the most important message I'll ever send. Of course, what is it? Another long pause. This time soft weeping can be heard from Ellen's microphone as a low humming grows louder in the background. His voice drops to a whisper. Komarov died screaming and burning, but at least he was embraced by the earth. 
I will not get the chance. Tell Masha, tell my boy, don't look up at the moon. Transmission concluded. Future attempts to reach Colonel Allen were unsuccessful, and he was presumed dead on May 30th, 1967. This, on its own, is disturbing. It's been posited before that insanity can come in prolonged darkness and silences. Imagine looking around you, a desolated rock, with darkness stretching in every direction. The only piece of hope is a colorful orb that you will never get to see again. But it doesn't end there. This is simply the prelude to what they found. Something is calling to me from outside of the bunker, but it's a clear night tonight. I know better. Nothing more to do right now than carry on, right? The Soviets would launch a final expedition on August 12, 1971. A reconnaissance job involving three astronauts would scope out Ellen's final location and see what they could find. The space race is now long over and interest dwindling. It was hoped that a definitive find would help boost funding and establish Soviet dominance. Rather than relaying the entire transcript, I'll pick things up from the first hour following a successful landing and beginning their search. August 13th, 1971. Landing of Fedorov 2 successful, transmission established. Project Overseer, Dr. Vitaly. Cosmonauts, Commander Abramovich, Pilot Vitak, and Science Pilot Semenov. Commander Abramovich, checking in, making our way to Colonel Allen's last known coordinates, ETA three hours. Semenov says he sees something and wants to check it out first. Understood. Keep your wits about you, Ilya. It's unknown territory once you reach the spot. There's a short discussion, and Abramovich comes back confused. Doctor, you said Colonel Allen's ship malfunctioned with no way to return, yes? Uh, that's correct, Commander. Is there an issue? Yes. Semenov has looked at the ship. The damage done to it was man-made. There are several large dents on the outside, and the panel was forcibly ripped. Muffled murmurings from Vitaly's side continues for a couple minutes. Abramovich clearly is concerned. Doctor... It's been noted, perhaps more answers lay with his corpse. Collect what samples you need and head to his last known coordinates. Out. Three hours, eighteen minutes pass before correspondence begins again. We've arrived at Ellen's last known location. No sign of him. We can see the transmitter, the line between the light and the dark side of the moon, about one kilometer from our position. Vitak wants to scope it out. Head for the perimeter, but be wary. Oh, my God. Dr. Semenov says he can see a cave entrance right by the Terminator. I'm moving in for a closer look. If this is true, this could be the greatest find in human history, comrade. But keep sight for Ellen's body. That is still the priority. There's a long pause, and Abramovich speaks. His voice is shaking. We found him. Request permission to evacuate immediately. Denied. Why would you leave without exploring the cave? What's going on, Commander? Report. Semenov can be heard trying to calm down Vitak, 
who's having a panic attack. Colonel Allen is in a small hole that was made by extreme force. His body's been crushed, hands mangled, and visor destroyed. His face, oh God, pieces of it are missing. Something chewed off his cheeks and lips. Requesting permission to evacuate immediately, Doctor. Denied. You're not seriously suggesting there's something up there, are you, Commander? Listen to yourself. You're experiencing the same sickness as Ellen. The sight of a corpse is simply making you delirious. Doctor, all three of us are seeing the same thing. Enough! Leave him where he lies. We will discuss this soon. Explore the cave. This is too important to find to back out now. The last of our funding went into this project, and we will not leave empty-handed and let those capitalist pigs gloat over their victory. Do you hear me? Vitaly smacks his desk, and the mic booms. There's a short pause. Confirmed. Moving to explore. There's a silence for five minutes as the group maneuver to the cave opening. The cave itself appears natural, but the incline goes down and there seems to be some stronger gravity. There were some rudimentary steps, man-made, or some kind of creature, maybe. It goes down for a decent degree. We'll update you when we see the bottom. I want photos of everything, Abramovich. Make sure Vitak picks himself up and helps Semenov. Heavy breathing comes through seven minutes later, and when Abramovich speaks, he's exasperated. We've found a central room. For my best guess, several basic archways are leading further on, but we're in a makeshift command room. Vitak thinks that through the route we took, we've gone under the Terminator dividing the light and dark. Now we're firmly underneath the dark side of the moon. He thinks, Doctor, he thinks we're in front of shutters. There's a button in front of us. Semenov is begging us to go back. I think we should let... Push it. But, sir, you will not dishonor our motherland with your hesitance. We're on the cusp of greatness. Push it. Abramovich pushes the button, and the sound of the shutters rising fills the audio. Within sixty seconds, screaming follows. A heavy thud and the sound of glass breaking cut through the static before Abramovich can be heard panting. Oh my God, it's a viewing port. Where are pilot Vitak and science pilot Semenov? What's going on? It's a viewing port. It looks out on... No, 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 no. Abramovich is still panting, assumedly going back up the stairs and on the verge of tears, a mixture of crying and manic laughter. Vitaly is undeterred, but has clear stress in his voice. Commander, I need a report. Pull yourself together. When we looked out, Semenov started yelping, scratching at his visor. When that didn't work, he volleyed his head into Vitak's until the visor cracked. He continued while I got away. I didn't look for as long as either of them did, but I saw enough. It lucked out at, oh my God. My God, Nevin, we, what are we? Where are we? Is this a zoo? Doctor, what did you not tell us? I don't understand. What are you saying, Commander? You knew there was something here. 
You sent us out to die just like Ellen, didn't you? Sending the young to do what dickless old men like you could never do. Abramovich's tirade continues for several minutes. Words and behaviors he had never exhibited in his psych evaluation coming out. Vitaly sounds genuinely unsettled by some of the things he's saying. Commander, we only had an idea of what was there. We didn't know for sure. We still don't know. You haven't told us. Please, for the motherland, for those we've lost, tell me what you saw. The angry shouts stop, and a low rumble permeates through the transmission. Abramovich laughs and cries. It's hard to distinguish which is dominant. What is waiting for us? What are they watching for? There's a guardian here. It was asleep until Ellen woke it up by getting too close. It wants to make sure we never found out the truth. Oh, God, I'll never see my family again, my home. The rumble begins to cause crackling in the audio, and for a moment another voice comes through. It's Colonel Ellen's. The darkness is good, safe, comforting. We don't need to see what is behind the curtain, behind the fog. Don't look at the moon. For the first time, Vitaly is emotionally distraught. He's shaking and his lip quivers as he manages to utter one word. Why? It's a terrarium. Something is watching us. Transmission ended. Several days after this, Vitaly was found dead in his home from a self-inflicted gunshot wound, the telescope still propped up by his window. A simple note by his bedside said, It blinked, and at that moment I glimpsed madness. In January 1975, an event would encourage all involved parties to unilaterally agree that the moon should never be visited again. Various excuses of lack of funding, interest, resources, and so forth have been put forward. All have validity in them, but they hide the truth. The reason I'm telling you all now, the reason I'm in my bunker and will stay here until the danger passes, I don't even know how long it's been. Much like the cosmonauts, I'm in my void. Disconnected from light and other contacts, the voices I create are the only company I have. Maybe that's how Ellen felt when he realized what secrets were kept here and how important it was that he never took them back home. Perhaps anyone who stares at it for too long on unguarded nights is vulnerable. It brings with it an ugly glow. Its secrets laid a little too bare for normal minds to grapple with, encouraging them silently to behave unusually like an experiment. This is apt when you consider the words of Abramovich and Ellen together, the statement and the question. It's a terrarium. Something is watching us. Do you want to see what's behind the curtain? We looked behind the curtain. I don't know what exactly they saw, but with every supermoon it gets a little bit closer. And now it knows we're aware of it. There isn't meant to be a supermoon out tonight, but something is looming overhead, speaking to people. Please don't look at it. You don't want to know what's looking back.
I hope you enjoyed Behind the Curtain by author T.J. Lee, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed the tales you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Lee. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash L-E-A. Be sure especially to seek out his book, The Last Sin Eater, which contains further stories in the town of Sturgeon, which may have been mentioned once or twice in tonight's program. As a reminder, if you do decide to give any of this talented author's stories a read, please consider leaving them a quality review and a kind word, or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote, to be sure to let them know you heard about them on this program and that Otis Jiry sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm pretty sure TJ would much appreciate it as well. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Story Time, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, Stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel. 
the Otis Chivy channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>